0: Hey there, horror movie fans. Welcome back to Here's Me Me, horror movie podcast. So today I have a very special guest with me, Matthew Armstrong. Would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Hi, it is Matthew Armstrong, also uh, known as M.C. Armstrong. That is my nom de plume, the author name. Uh, I am the author of The Mysteries of Haditha, which tells the story of a kind of horror movie all into itself, the Iraq War. I'm a local greensboro writer i went over to haditha iraq in 2008 and um i learned that there are some really interesting connections to the iraq war and the global war on terror right here in greensboro while i was over there which was a strange thing to come to find in iraq those greensboro connections like naima did you know that the mastermind of 9-11 was educated right here.
0: I Heard it, A and T, right? Yeah, North Carolina A and T,
1: got his entire exposure to America in the 1980s here in Greensboro.
0: It's
1: not just horror films. Not just horror films. <laughs> no, I mean, I you know, as as we get ready to talk about uh, they live, mm-hmm. one of the things I think that movie is about, which kind of connects to um, what I experienced when I was over in Iraq, is I think this is a movie that is trying to teach you how to see. Right. You put on these sunglasses and suddenly you can see the truth. Mm -hmm. I had to travel 10,000 miles away to see what was in my own backyard. I had to travel to Iraq to see what had happened here in Greensboro. It wasn't until I got over there that I realized after talking to a woman that in Greensboro, North Carolina, the guy who had started the very war I was there to cover, um, he had been radicalized right here in Greensboro. Somebody put some sunglasses on me.
0: My God. Well, it was a great intro in. If he hadn't already said it, we're going to be talking about John Carpenter's They Live, 1988. And it's actually really funny because Matthew's the one who introduced me to the film, which I had never heard of. So it's definitely in the forgotten horror column. But I think it's actually one of John Carpenter's most smartest films. Mm-hmm. I mean, What do you think?
1: I think it's really smart. So smart, I'm almost hesitant to call it horror.
0: See, that's the thing, though. So since it has such heavy elements of science fiction and action present, Mm -hmm. but because there's still so much of a subgenre of horror present, you could still make an argument that it is within the horror genre spectrum.
1: And I agree, and I think we should be talking about it as horror, but I also think it's important to remember that things get called horror for very interesting reasons. Mm -hmm. John Carpenter is famous for a couple movies, but probably none so much as Halloween,
0: Oh, yes.
1: Right? So he makes this movie very early on, Mm -hmm. and because of it, and because it's horror, we say, here is a horror director.
0: Mm -hmm. What if They
1: Live had been his first movie? Would we have called it horror?
0: Okay. Okay. You know what? You have a good point. Yes. Mm -hmm. But how come John Carpenter continued? To write horror. Is it because he had already gotten this big title? What do you think? Why was why
1: was he so fascinated with this particular genre?
0: Well, I heard that John Carpenter's always been a fan of science fiction. Mm-hmm. So maybe just taking that element of science fiction, why not use it to his advantage within the horror genre? The thing is, as a director, if you get called to this one thing, take advantage of it to the point where maybe you're run dry and then you can kind of back up. But I think what he did with They Live is that he still kept this horror-esque element that mm-hmm. we could still argue it to be horror, but it's not. So I think he played it very smart on how he approached it. So, yes, I agree with you. We should not label directors in one specific column. But I also think John Carpenter kind of labeled himself in the horror genre.
1: I think he's doing something in this film that... Actually, I, I, I try to do it in my book. I try to marry genres.
0: Uh, that's, right? says, yeah. I try to
1: subvert genre mm-hmm. by bringing them together. What happens if you take journalism what if you, what happens if you take very serious reportorial journalism and mix it with memoir what happens if you take autobiography and mix it with serious reportorial journalism what is carpenter doing he's taking horror and he's marrying it to science fiction
0: and action and
1: action and as we were talking about earlier, even a little bit of comedy. There's some oh. there's some high slapstick.
0: Slapstick, meta, and oh, you said surrealism as mm-hmm. well.
1: And what does that do to the audience? It makes them wonder, huh, what box do I put this in? What box category does this go in? And that's what seeing is all about, realizing that there the is old no categories don't work anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. That's why you have to put the glasses on. Yeah. Do you want to give us a little rundown of what They Live is about?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um... It starts, as Naima said, in 1988 with a homeless guy, right? And what's the guy's name? There's no name. Exactly. They never
0: say his name, only in the credits. And even then, I don't even remember. He's known as
1: Nada, which is Spanish for nothing.
0: But you know what else, though? John Carpenter got a lot of his inspiration from this short story called 8 O'Clock in the Morning, Mm -hmm. which also got turned into this I guess, I think it was a comic book, and then it got turned into a short, Mm -hmm. which was known as Nada. And -hmm. that's why he named the character Nada, because of that short story that he took inspiration from.
1: Why do you think he left him nameless? You think it's for the same reason that we're talking about? Even this man is out of the box of names, Mm -hmm. of categories.
0: He's in a world full of materialism and consumerism. His little existence means nothing. His little existence is in combined, in in comparison with everybody else. He's, he's nothing. He mm-hmm. is living. He's the only person that sees the truth. So for us, we view him as this foreigner, this outsider for him. He's nothing. He's a homeless man.
1: And that's really important. He's poor,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Carpenter's protagonist not only has no name, he has no things,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? He is totally unbound, and he walks into this landscape. I think it's Los Angeles, yes?
0: Yes, because uh, I think in some European countries, they changed the name mm-hmm. to Invasion of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. So, uh, which I don't understand why change the name but yes it was in los angeles so
1: it's a homeless guy without a name mm-hmm. entering this city which is where so much media comes from right mm-hmm. hollywood right this is where our stories come Capitalism. from this guy gets out of jail he's in this homeless park and he notices something across the street in a church of all places mm-hmm. he notices all this activity and he goes into that church and he finds this box of sunglasses He has no idea what to do with these sunglasses. He has no idea why this church is trafficking in sunglasses. But then he puts them on one day. And this is like the most famous moment Mm -hmm. in the movie. When he puts them on, suddenly he can see. He can see the code behind the images. Where once there was a picture of a woman in a bikini, Mm -hmm. it suddenly says, reproduce. Mm -hmm. Right? Where once there was a dollar bill with a picture of George Washington what does it say? This is your God, right? All of a sudden, you put on the glasses and I you can the read the world. And I think one of the things that makes this movie so fascinating is it is doing that rarest of things. It is a movie that teaches us how to read.
0: It's, for me, isn't it also kind of taking a dab at media, at Hollywood? Big time. I mean, I feel like he is just, he's pulling a Shakespeare. He's basically showing he's be, he's a Hollywood star
1: mm-hmm.
0: portraying this problem within Hollywood, problem within media, problem within that time period of all this materialistic consumerism and just throwing it at people. And people are so blind that they don't see it. Mm-hmm. And in order for you to see it, you have to go through a separate lens. And that's what Shakespeare did. So for me, it's just such a
1: well, think about what these people who have lenses are doing. When, when they actually get the lenses, how do they start trying to fight back? What is the nature of the resistance here with uh, Roddy Piper and Keith David and this church that they uh, affiliate with? What are they doing to try to take down this Los Angeles sort of media empire? The thing is,
0: even the people that they so-called trust, they can't. Like, even Meg Foster's character, right. who we assume is going to be the love interest of Nana. Right. She's a woman. Yeah.
1: Must be a good guy.
0: It must be the love interest, but in reality, not at all. Like, no. they completely, like, reverted that stereotype, and she actually ended up being the bad guy, which, for me, it's Meg Foster. Mm-hmm. I mean, why are you surprised? <laughs> Does she
1: might have the craziest, most interesting eyes, though? Oh, my
0: though? God. Those eyes, you can tell she's hiding something in them. Uh-huh. There's no way that she was going to be good in this film.
1: But think about what Carpenter's doing. You have Meg Foster's eyes, which any director... You have to acknowledge that is her most dominant feature. You've got the sunglasses, again, the eyes. And what about that preacher who is working with the church? What's noteworthy about him? He's blind. There's so much attention to ocularity, right? To eyes.
0: And see. Sophocles did that in all of his work. That's the thing Like I always notice when I break down things. I see that there's not much originality when people pick like how they want to go about the films. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of Shakespeare-esque up into it, and there's also a little bit of Greek tragedy with the whole idea of blindness, but the blind know better than the not blind. But they look, see more than everybody else
1: does. There, I think there are two really original things in this. One are the sunglasses, right? So Those are have 100% sunglasses. original,
0: yes. And yes. how often
1: do we see wearing sunglasses like that? The blind.
0: But what about Invasion right? of the Body Snatchers, the film? What about? We don't know who the real aliens are. Yeah. But How do we know? You know what I mean? So that's one thing I took is like, does it remind you of Invasion of the Body Snatchers and the attempt of who's the real people and who are the aliens? Yeah. So for me, there is originality present in horror, but there is so many elements that they implement too that you can nitpick. And I think the problem is with me being a horror film enthusiast, Mm -hmm. I see all of these things. And for me, it's just, it makes it so much harder to impress me with films.
1: So you see this as a kind of response to Invasion of the Body Snatchers.
0: Not necessarily. I think it is a form of a spin-off, but more on like the political climate mm-hmm. of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I love this film. I think this film is incredibly unique and a lot better, especially for its time period. But even looking at it in 2020, mm-hmm. this is more relevant in 2020 than I think it even was back in its oh, own absolutely. time period. I think this film is brilliant, but we also have to acknowledge the elements that are taken from all these films because... As a filmmaker myself, I do the same thing. And I think we have to acknowledge where the originality comes from too. Mm-hmm. So, But I think that John Carpenter is a brilliant
1: director. You know, one of, one of the things that I think makes this film so timely, and I would even say prophetic, mm-hmm. is look at what this community is doing, the ones who are taking on the global conglomerate. They're hacking, right? When you look at some of the most controversial political prisoners of our time like Julian Assange, Edward Snowden, Mm. reality winner, Chelsea Manning. Why are these people either asylumed in Russia or in prison in England or have been imprisoned here in America? It's because they have hacked. It's because they have hacked the code. They have gone into the kind of media, the mainstream media, where they've gone into secret files and they've revealed them through the mainstream media. They've sort of revealed in a mainstream media that is largely controlled by corporate interests truths that are very uncomfortable to those interests. And because of that, these people are now in prison. This is a movie before the internet. 1988, there was no internet. Yeah, This is seven years before Netscape went public, and they're talking about the need to hack in to media so in order to get film? the truth out
0: could this film technically fall under the one of the first films on the war on technology without technically being on the war of technology?
1: I think it's a film I'd put with, uh, say, movies like War Games with Matthew Broderick, you know, which came out in, I think, 1983, 1984. So there are these movies in the 80s that are starting to pay attention to computers and screens and how they shape not only the way we see each other, but the way we think. Uh, and the way we engage with, uh, you know, power structures.
0: I think that, I don't know how John Carpenter came up with the concept. I, I mean, one of the biggest things was the obey. Mm-hmm. Putting on those glasses, seeing that billboard, obey. Like that hit me probably one of the most out of the entire film. Yeah. Because you sit back and there's actually a new thing on Netflix. It's called The the Social Dilemma. The Social Dilemma. I haven't I seen it. it yet. Yeah. but I definitely think that's something to talk about one of these days. But it just, when I saw that, I was like, oh my God. Like John Carpenter was so ahead of his time because we really are so blind. Mm-hmm. We and are so blind
1: behind the screen, and I
0: they think. know what they're doing. I don't think
1: that requires a conspiracy theorist to say. Right, but
0: they know what they're doing. They, they know do. what they're doing. They know how to manipulate one's emotion. And for me, even though there, is, for me, how you say that this may not be a horror film. I think that the idea that somebody could use that type of resource to manipulate someone's emotions and behavior is horrifying. I agree. So for me, I put it under the horror spectrum just because that is a, for a personal reason, that is horrifying.
1: But it, it, it updates the definition of horror, doesn't it? I Horror mean, is a spectrum. It means that horror could be just a description of the world as it is.
0: Oh, okay. I think that any, if you can make a solid argument... The Truman Show could be a horror film. Mm -hmm. If you really wanna make a strong argument, if I had to defend my life, I could make The Truman Show a horror film in my own eyes because of just how absolutely terrifying the government is like taking this boy, taking this man and just manipulating his entire life Mm -hmm. for their own social experiment. I mean, look at the French extremity movements. Some of those films in there are so vulgar And people are like, oh, this is just full of torture porn. But in reality, you don't understand that, that the upper class, how manipulative and how controlling they have on the lower class. Parasite, it is a horror film. Like, I will make arguments on all of this because of the power structures that are present and because of the actions and the consequences that come with it. So why can't they live? Fall under that category. Besides I think that eight-minute fight. Right, night, right yeah. now, I
1: think American 2020 is a, a horror, horror movie film. with its protagonists repurposed from this very time period, the late 1980s. So the right, history that, repeats itself. I mean, look at look at who look at who's running for president. Joe Biden and Donald Trump. I would have believed that runoff in 1988 when they live. Why is it that we continue to recycle these figures?
0: Same reason horror filmmakers recycle their work, because it's relevant again.
1: Yeah, but you know what's interesting about the way horror recycles is as it recycles, it gets more intelligent. Sometimes. You would you would grant me though right as as, as as horror evolves it becomes more metacognitive it mm-hmm. becomes more sort of aware of itself mm-hmm. I'm not so sure as Donald Trump quote unquote evolves he becomes more aware of himself yeah. I'm not sure Joe Biden is becoming more and more aware of but himself. Americans
0: are not becoming more aware or aware of themselves either we think that they are but where are the actions showing that they are? I'm
1: not sure they are either, but horror is. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it is the it is a smart genre for this movie, because this is about a guy who's suddenly becoming aware of himself, mm-hmm. suddenly becoming aware of this code behind everything. I think the most interesting genres sometimes are the most rotten genres. Yeah. And horror is often a rotten genre. with All these replayed moves and features, it's because it's rotten that good, smart directors go in and subvert and play and can't help but you know reflect on those broken structures
0: well looking at it like that and you know like the refurbished halloween movies that yeah. we we're talking about yeah and i know they're by a wonderful director uh rob zombie rob zombie rob zombie is a wonderful director with mm-hmm. such a unique perspective on horror you know and the reason i bring him up is because he did do the refurbished. Um, Halloween's. Yeah. And I see kind of the keen eye where he was going for, but I still think he failed in his element of trying to refurbish. That's the only reason why I said what I said earlier, but there are a lot of war films that are growing. But my thing is it's so hard to distinguish between the ones that are growing and not growing just because of how... There's just so many that are coming out Yeah. and you see kind of where they're coming from. But sometimes they can try so hard, but fall so short.
1: Yeah. You and know? sometimes I think we want them to retreat into the old plot lines yeah. because there is a classic. Form so how do we suspense. change
0: that? How do we become John Carpenters and they live when it comes to analyzing horror? If we keep wanting to return ourselves back to original,
1: how do you evolve it into the next great horror movie? Is Ari Aster. Question?
0: Yeah. How do we how do we look at everything like we look at Ari Aster?
1: Somehow you got to get the sunglasses, right? Yeah. Somehow you've got to get the lenses. So I think it begs the question, like, what is Carpenter? What is the metaphor he's he's using there with those sunglasses? When you think, ah, oh, I put on these lenses and now I see. What's
0: he talking about? What is he talking about?
1: I mean, I think anytime you put any kind of lens, like in academia, when we say, try on this lens. Maybe sometimes we mean class, okay. right? Like, what happens if you look at the world through a class lens? <laughs> it becomes clear. What happens if you look at the world through a race lens? it becomes clear. What happens if you look at the world through a war lens? Whoa. What happens if you look at the world through a religion lens? What happens if you look at the world through a media lens? When you put on these lenses, when you become aware that you are looking at the world through a lens,
0: so looking at each in each objective, looking at each kind of,
1: objective having some each, kind of objective, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you're looking at the world, if you're not looking with any objective with any, without if you're looking without a lens it's really hard to kind of get a bead. To so get a focus. specifically focusing, yeah, even having I, a focus, having a purpose you in what you're looking true. at,
0: and an open minded nature. Even for me, watching it, I'm like, oh my god, I'm so open minded. And then you sit here and you ask me, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm still blind. Mm-hmm. I'm still very blind because I can watch it, I can understand it, I can know it's happening, but my mind still has not comprehended it. And I think even with everything going on in the world right now, we acknowledge what's going on, we see what's going on. But that's it. We stop there. There's no what's next. We we still haven't reached that level of like that heightened sense where we're like, oh, my God, what is going on?
1: But just because we know that there's a world to be decoded it doesn't mean so we can see the code. Like think about what we saw on Battleground Avenue, that billboard. Right. Mm-hmm. It looked like it was right out of they live. Mm-hmm. Now, it's got the graphics. It's got almost the same kind of verbiage, comply, mm-hmm. right? Obey the governor.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but people who are digging into that billboard realize this is not necessarily coming from a liberating source. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But it's coming from a Trump-supporting businessman named Marty Codas. He's the guy who's putting these billboards up around town. Are they serving John Carpenter's purpose? Are they liberating us with this kind of they live rhetoric? Or are they actually doing what Carpenter himself is doing, repurposing?
0: That depends on who you ask.
1: I wonder what Marty Cotis himself would say. Like, what is he doing? I don't even think they see it
0: in that type of manner. I think for me, when it comes to whoever is doing that specific job, whoever is implementing that, they have a specific kind of... uh, Outcome that they are looking for, so it's kind of depending on them. But it also well, I think on he wants he
1: us to disobey the governor <laughs> for
0: sure. And when I
1: put that billboard up on Twitter and I said, "What movie does this remind you of?" Instantly, somebody said, that, you know. the
0: thing is, at the end of the day, most of us will kind of comply with what is being said and understand by that nature. But I think the ones who are the ones who wear the glasses on the daily basis, the ones who have achieved that level of not Nirvana, but that level of open-minded i'm just going to say the level of glasses because that's exactly Mm -hmm. what it is who have reached the level of the glasses that once you've hit that level you see right through everything and i feel like even as a person as somebody who could watch it somebody who has seen all of this go down someone as a minority i still feel like i am not out of that comfort zone to look through those glasses the way i should be looking through those glasses and i always wonder how do you get to that level how do you like he got to it but the thing is with him he is a homeless man. He came from nothing. Like, remember you were saying to and me he earlier? Dies too. he died. <laughs> I'm sorry. A heroic death. You know, it was bound to happen. Spoiler alert. It was alert. To come. Yeah. But think about it. Think about it. Remember how we were talking earlier? Sometimes the less you know, the, the better it is when you grasp the concept. Mm-hmm. But for us, we live in this world where we're comfortable. So for us, we tell our story the ba- the way we tell it. Remember what we were saying earlier?
1: Mm-hmm. He, that naivete.
0: Yeah, he came from nothing. So for him, he had this keen, fresh eye that when he put those glasses on, he didn't know anything and he had to learn on his way. For us, we have an expectation. So when we put those glasses on, yes, we may see it, but we will never see it the way he see it. He has seen it.
1: You know, when, when I was over in Iraq and I realized I knew nothing and I was basically a child. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was 30, but I was basically a child in terms of um, my awareness of my situation. Mm-hmm. Um, It was initially scary because I knew nothing and I knew I knew nothing, but like a child, instead of like an adult reporter who thinks he knows everything, I would just go up to people and I'd be like, what's that? (laughs) And they'd say, you don't know what that is? Let me show you the burn pits. And they would show me this thing back in 2008 that later becomes one of the biggest stories of the war, assuming that I already knew what it was and assuming that I already understood its significance. Because I didn't, I was sometimes shown things like a child that other journalists maybe didn't get to see. I had a conversation with a whistleblower that, you know, you'll see in the book where –
0: I got my own autographed copy, so
1: special. Well, you know, you, you, you've been uh, an influence.
0: Oh, I love that. You heard that?
1: You have been an influence. <laughs> 20
0: years down the line, if I get famous.
1: I've, I've learned a lot from you. I and um, I, I met a whistleblower over there. And when I told him I'd been to Haditha, he said, oh, did they show you what they found at the base of the dam? And again, like a child, I like I, I, I there was a part of me, the adult. And I think the adult sometimes is the idiot.
0: Mm-hmm. The
1: adult wants to say, oh, yeah, they showed me everything about the <laughs> dam. I know all there is to know about the dam. Instead, I just said what I'd gotten used to saying in a rap. No. What do you mean?
0: I love that. No.
1: What do you mean? And, you know, like almost like a father talking to a son, like an adult talking to a child. He told me exactly what he had seen. The base of the dam. And you'll see that in the book. And I think there's a lot to recommend that that kind of naivete, that humility, you you know? You brought
0: up a really good point how sometimes the adults are so stupid Mm -hmm. compared to the children. I mean, maybe that's like a Stephen King thing for me. Like, have you noticed Stephen King does a lot of child being the more smart and understanding? That's a kind of
1: romantic trope, that the child has wisdom, that the child has eyes that are still open. I mean,
0: I'm sorry, the adult has... the adult has come to this sense where, like I said before, they see the world one way and they've been so exposed mm-hmm. that there's just they have this just because they think they know minded, everything. Exactly. And the children, and I, I think Stephen King is a beautiful example because I think Stephen King implements so much children in mm-hmm. some of his work to kind of show, hey, like, don't doubt them. And what does they he know? call it
1: when they can see they got the shine?
0: hmm. Right, they got
1: the shine. And in, in the trick
0: nice pun. <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: That, yeah. I mean, the, the trick in life, this is what some people say about genius This is what some people say about sense of humor. This is what some people say about vision, artistry. The trick is not losing the shine. I think as children, our eyes are open. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot that we do. I think we do need to learn and read and all of that, all that mediated acquisition. That's important. But there those binary boxes, those boxes that organize the world, they don't organize the child's
0: mind. Um, well, but we never talk about like the stylistic choices, too. Yeah. I want to make sure I mention that before yeah. I get about the glasses, portray like the 1950s B-movies, mm-hmm. and how they go from like technicolor to like black and white. Yeah. So what do you think the whole concept? Of, yeah, that's what cool. I hadn't thought about what's, that. What's crazy about me, I would think when you put the glasses on, you would see the technicolor.
1: Oh, uh, that's so smart. I did not thought, yeah. yeah. But how cool <laughs> when you
0: put the glasses on you see the black and white?
1: Well, I guess there's something to be said for black and white very clearly codifying and delineating the world, right? You can see the lines. With black and white, I think I think so. I think maybe what Carpenter's saying is we get so immersed in these simulacrums. right? We get so immersed in movies, we get so immersed in the kind of media that comes out of Hollywood that is so special effecty, so full of so color. So bringing it back
0: to originality, bringing it back to... What happens
1: if we strip that away?
0: Mm, what's underneath? Yeah. Actually, that's a good... Because I was so confused. I was like, why would he not
1: switch but I, it? I think you're right. I think he's also kind of doing a um, sort of nostalgic back and forth. In yeah. Hollywood, we're going back and forth between color and black and white. I thought
0: that was probably one of that's... the coolest elements I saw in the film. I was like, why did he pick this choice? What mm-hmm. was going through? You ever wonder what goes through these directors' heads? Where did you get this concept? Why put the glasses on? But also maybe the idea of shade, because when you put the glasses on, maybe it's kind of like, I don't know. That's just maybe getting a little too technical into it. Well, in the 80s, uh,
1: you know, I grew up in the 80s. The shades
0: were the thing. They
1: signified that you were cool. Uh, Right? Yeah. So he's kind of rehabilitating the idea of cool. Cool, in a lot of cases, meant you actually bought into consumerist culture. Mm -hmm. You bought into trends and fashion. It meant you were blind.
0: But it was also during the Reagan era.
1: Not only was it in the Reagan era, the movie came out pretty much on the day
0: mm-hmm. that the
1: Reagan administration ended, November fourth, nineteen eighty-eight. Really, pretty much election day. So he was
0: planning that. I mean, maybe not, but maybe it was just a big coincidence. Well, you know? I think that. I mean,
1: I think it, whether he was planning it, whether it was accidental, the fact is, this movie comes out in nineteen eighty-eight at a moment when America is changing in all these interesting ways. Reagan, what was Reagan's career before he was president?
0: Oh, I don't, no idea. He was an actor? From Hollywood. Are you serious? Los Angeles. Stop.
1: This is a movie that is made at the end of the administration of our first actor president. Huh. Why is it so prophetic? Well, look who our president is right now. A reality TV Oh my God, star. I
0: watched him on The Apprentice. Don't even remind me. Oh the relationship God. between
1: aesthetics and politics, between Hollywood and so Washington. history really is
0: repeating itself. Yeah, oh I, think, I think there's a
1: very, very powerful reason that this movie about power and politics is set. In Los Angeles.
0: This is such... For me, this is a classic. I know it's not considered under the classical film. I agree. But if this film is so relatable in so many different time periods, how can you not place it in such a classical time period piece? I mean... I think
1: that's one of the reasons it didn't become popular is because of that very thing that is making you and me I want to call it a classic. It doesn't fit.
0: I think people who are just unaware of how spectacular, or not even horror films, how films can be and mm-hmm. how much we could relate because I mean growing up I watched films my entire life and people you know back in the day uh, TV will rot your brain TV will do this but if you really sit and you examine the film for what it is. You don't have to deal with
1: those commercials. Oh
0: of course not we're going to eliminate commercials but if you ever sit and watch a film and you take so much out of it it really depends on how you look at it. People are like oh it rots your brain and other people like me and you we see so much life and beauty that we implement in our daily lives. I agree. do you know? i agree so, i mean i
1: like like i said it's it's a, not just a movie that teaches you how to read i think a lot of movies teach you how to read so
0: many and commercials are the technicolor of the film
1: mm-hmm. i think that's the black and white uh-huh. right here's here is the code behind everything you're watching it is being brought to you by exxon mm-hmm. it is being brought to you by coca-cola how many
0: times did you want to go out and get a coca-cola Mm -hmm. Or a cheeseburger.
1: It's pushing you to buy something.
0: Oh, the, the industry behind that is ridiculous. It is... Oh... Oh, my God. Marshall
1: McLuhan, uh, the media scholar, always said uh, that the medium is the message, mm-hmm. right? When you're watching a movie, one of the great things about it is you don't get, like television, those commercial interruptions. Yeah. However, if you watch it on this thing, if yeah. you watch it on the screen now, you pop-ups. sometimes you do get the pop-up. Sometimes you are forced to look at those commercials. So as the medium shifts, the message, the way we internalize movies, the way we internalize even music on the computer because it's getting it so compressed to mm-hmm. all of all of those messages get to get changed with the media
0: i think john carpenter knew where we were going and i think he had to start us at a base but he knew where we were going in terms of this whole materialistic technology uh manipulating mind control type of work that's going on and i think he knew of
1: course he, he knew. knew he was a director who was living in what city
0: Los Angeles, living in the heart of the city. And then all of a sudden, this big film that has so much just em- and just depth into it. And then he throws in all of the slapstick, I think, to kind of tone it. And yeah. then this like eight minute fight scene that just makes you want to laugh the entire time. Yeah. I mean, I, you told me that's your favorite movie. Roddy scene. Piper. Yes. Now,
1: one one thing that I think.
0: you think Roddy Piper originally a. A wrestler? Yes,
1: and why? He's a wrestler. Yeah, he uses <laughs> a professional WWF wrestler as oh his protagonist. God. Why? Why do you think Carpenter? I mean, this is a bold move. He doesn't go after a Sylvester but Stallone. think about
0: it, though. Why not? Why have you ever seen the movie? um uh, Oh my God, the movie with the other WWE star. It was uh, oh, a okay. Ceno Evil. you Ever seen Ceno Evil? Uh, professional movie. It's it's basically there's two there's two films and it's it's kind of like these uh, delinquent kids go into this house they have to stay for the night and then this w the WWE wrestler I don't know his name because I'm not I'm not into wrestling like, I just that was the highlight he was the star vehicle of that film mm-hmm. because he was so well known and he basically goes and he kills them like it was the plot is not like the deepest thing in the world I mean it's a very fun watch but I'm not gonna say it's that deep but for me when I think of a film I think of that film of course. Uh, john carpenter did it first but he just when i think about it more for john carpenter's sake not for this other film is that why not use a real life wrestler to do a real life fight scene because that's what they do think
1: about that phrase you just used a real life wrestler if you are a real life wwf wrestler what is the nature of your work it's not real Right. That's I think what's so fascinating about making a WWF wrestler, your homeless main character. Here's this guy who is suddenly as real as it gets living in the thick of homelessness and class struggle. But how do we know him from the other life, his Hollywood life? He is like a serious performer. He's a faker.
0: So it's a risk move. Oh, it's a very it's, risky with move, It's a then. very
1: serious meta quality, right? We're wow. seeing a guy who's suddenly seeing for real, who we're used to seeing perform the high acts of fakery. I didn't
0: think about it. Oh, because think about it. Most horror films that are making it nowadays, they use these very unknown actors. Mm-hmm. Because we don't have any type of strings that we attach with them. That way, we view them as we view ourselves. And yeah. more empathy is present. But. I like your point because you're actually right.
1: It's a particular species of unknown. He's not a known Hollywood entity as an actor. But it's also a very
0: risky move that he made, but it worked for him. It worked for John Carpenter. Yeah,
1: People understood it when they saw that Roddy Piper was the main character. I think a lot of people got it. Oh, this WWF guy who fakes it for a living. But it
0: could have. It could have backfired. It could have. I mean,
1: he might have been a terrible actor, but I think he actually did a great job. And also gave
0: the movie more public... It gave the movie more publicity, but even then, the movie wasn't publicized that much. Right. Like, it's not one of his well-known works. Like, we think of all of his other movies, but we don't ever think about They Live. Because I love John Carpenter. He's though. a he huge director,
1: it. but I think a lot of times when you don't bank on the big stars, like the Brad Pitt's, the Sylvester's, Delone, yeah. or the Arnold Schwarzenegger's, mm-hmm. you don't get their publicity departments.
0: This movie, the budget was $4 million, and it grossed $13 million. That's, that's nothing. Success.
1: I mean, that's a success, though. It
0: is a success, but compared to his other films, yeah. I guess for him, it wasn't... Well, think about it—a budget of four million. Who budgets four million nowadays? That's budget of four million is one of the minimal budgets that you could go for with yeah. a with a filmmaker like Pretty much
1: everything takes with, like, place center. right there on the streets.
0: My God! And then he did make a profit, but I guess when in comparison to his other films, I guess that's why it kind of got bumped down into like the forgotten horror yeah. spectrum. But I think I don't understand like these films that are so beautiful. And these horror film enthusiasts that also talk about horror films, they don't talk about these forgotten horrors. Is it because they don't know about it or because maybe people will not want to watch it because they don't know what it is?
1: I don't think um, I I think there are a lot of people don't think there's as much dignity Mm -hmm. in talking about horror. It's right? terrible. I mean, there are a lot of forms of music and literature, like, I mean, genre in general, like sci fi books. Do we teach sci fi here at UNCG? Why not? not often. Like, once a blue moon, a professor will get the courage up to teach horror or sci-fi. Why? Why? And we never teach romance, even though it's one of the most popular genres in America. Because people
0: don't find substance in it. They're looking at the wrong books.
1: You're looking and you're looking at it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. If you put the lens, if you put, put the, the sunglasses you put the glasses on, mm-hmm. and you say, you know what, we're going to take an academic lens on conspiracy theories. We're going to take an academic lens on horror. We're going to put an academic lens on sci-fi. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden you're not talking just about the plot and what happens, which can often be formulaic and predictable, you're talking about why it happens and you're talking about things that are really fascinating, like why are so many people buying it? Why are so many people spending the majority of their conscious entertainment hours on these entertainments that a lot of people in academia want to say are garbage?
0: Because people want to follow the trend. People want to buy into that materialistic consumerism. They don't want to put on the glasses. That's my ex- that's in my new I line. I think that's
1: part of it. But I they think also sometimes glasses. people are getting a kind of nourishment from these movies and stories. Like from like TV. horror. Like you, you get a nourishment yeah, from horror, but right? but these are
0: like, we're talking about like the stereotypical everybody wants to go see it films. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you really think some, some of them deserve the hype that they deserve? And people start criticizing it because of how much it's doing well and they're like oh it's just now it's fallen into the regulatory like category but there's also some films that i watch that are so famous and i sit back and i try i really try to indulge the beauty of it but there's just no like what? there's well, no, like what
1: would be an example of a big disappointment See, that's the
0: thing though i don't know because i don't let it occupy my mind like once it's there i'm like bye I
1: can tell you that most of the Batman movies I didn't like, and then all of a sudden Dark Knight came around. I was like...
0: Well, franchises are different. Franchises are... Most of the time, they use franchises to just make money and to keep the title after a certain amount of years have gone. Mm Because then, what is it? They lose the... If you don't do it after a certain amount of years, they lose the rights. Right. So in order to keep the rights, they just keep going with these franchises. But I heard really good things about, it. I mean, Heath Ledger, correct? Yeah. Heath Ledger is his one of. his
1: performance in that and what that movie is doing, again, with genre mm-hmm. and the kinds of materials it is sneaking in, kind of Trojan horsing into a comic book movie. into a Is it a DC or a Marvel? Oh,
0: but that's the I'm not big on comic books, yeah. but...
1: But you know what I'm, I'm saying, that right? is a
0: great film. Yes, I know what you're saying. You can
1: Trojan horse all kinds of interesting, powerful material into these supposedly dead or formulaic genres because they are popular. Because people do want to see them. You can sneak that interesting stuff in and occasionally get away with it and when you do, like with this movie. What
0: about Joker, too, blow though?
1: people's minds, yeah. Same
0: thing. Yeah. I think Joker... Well, technically I think Joker kind of took a very different approach than a lot of the other Marvel or DC films. I think I it, liked it. I loved it. Yeah. I I've I, never
1: seen anything like I came out of oh the uh, the movie
0: I was and there just was a depressed. kid about
1: fifteen years old who was dancing in the park, Yes, we had 15 doing too. doing the Joker dance. I've never seen a movie reproduce. It's dancing in so many people. But the thing is, I don't even That realize. was powerful and scary. It was yeah. kind of creepy. I consider it a horror. Yeah.
0: I, I think I talked about it in one of my other... Maybe I need to go into a more in-depth discussion on it one day, but I did talk about it in my Oscar special. And I was saying, I remember that walking out of that film, I did see people dancing, but I don't even think those people realize they were dancing but I don't think they realized the significance of what they were doing oh, and yeah. that's also I think we can even relate it back to They Live I think they we are can relate being, it back to
1: Donald Trump you <laughs> relate it back to
0: anything like you you basically got your mind that film alone got into you that you actually did it yeah. that is insane same thing with They Live these posters, everything that we're seeing, we're like, oh, I'm not going to buy into it. You bought into it without you even realizing you bought into all of this. And for me, the alien aspect of it, because, yes, we have to admit there are aliens in there, mm-hmm. which I, for me, it's not even the most important aspect. But from what I understood of the aliens, the aliens, of course, are the enemies and they represent the greed and excess of life. So I was saying about the makeup. So he did the makeup to make them look specifically like ghouls to demonstrate the greed and the power hungry nature of them. But the creatures are corrupting us. So they themselves are corruptions of human beings, Mm. which I think is the only kind of understanding of the way he did his makeup. And the only reason that I'm like, okay, I like the makeup aspect of it. And I like the alien aspect, because the alien aspect could have just been an extra thing present in there. But I think because of that mindset of how he, John Carpenter, kind of worded it himself, Mm -hmm. it makes it even more successful in the film on how he approached even the makeup element of how... the characters that's I mean, a
1: really good point
0: i mean it's he really thoroughly i don't even know if he even thoroughly thought it through the way we're thoroughly thinking you ever think that i
1: think he did i mean i think, think so. i mean i think when you look at like advertising campaigns and movies i think there is a tendency to say oh we're looking too much into it yeah. and maybe that's true sometimes but one thing i do know from having been just behind the curtain of a book yeah is that when people spend money on something, whether it's a publishing house, or an advertising campaign, or a movie, Mm -hmm. there are people in rooms asking why each decision is being made. Mm You know, When people are spending money on a story, they may not be having the same thoughts as you, but they're doing a lot of thinking. I think there's a tendency for a lot of them to say when they're in public, oh, you're looking too much into it, or it's not about this or that. But I think when they're in private, they'll acknowledge it is about this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. And just like what he's showing in the movie, when you get behind the screen, when you get behind the image of a movie, what's there? A script, Mm -hmm. right? And all kinds of directions, all kinds of very thoughtful notes, right? There's a code behind they live.
0: And the director himself being there, you don't even know what goes through his mind on every little thing that he you me, believe
1: a lot goes through his mind
0: that's the beauty of the like if when I hopefully one day make my films I pray first of all I write my own stuff and I'm able to direct my what own work I am gonna do it I pray that I'm gonna be the one first I would only direct my own work because I, I cannot put my hands and trust in somebody else to do my work for me because they don't have the keen eye that I do of the story I wrote which is fair we're not gonna we're not gonna put him in the category of that new Halloween film that came out the oh. one where he like co-directed mm-hmm. I'm not gonna count that against him it was a terrible film i don't even know why jamie lynn curtis would even have the audacity to come back and do that money
1: perhaps the money
0: i don't for me i i I value my dignity more than i value the money but again once you're in hollywood maybe it's a whole different story but we're gonna we're gonna discredit that film because he did co-direct it and he's he's older i don't you know he's just
1: you can get a lot of money just for lending your name to something like, I mean, why the,
0: would you want to lend your name? on? Like I always trash. question
1: when I see in credits, executive producer, Michael Douglas, like I'm watching Ratchet right now on oh, I'm watching Ratchet.
0: Are you, you watching God. it too? Okay, no, that's a whole different. That's my,
1: yes. <laughs> As you said at the beginning, they live started with a short story.
0: Yep. Oh, it started from a comic 63. book to a short story to the film.
1: Yeah. One story gives breath to another.
0: And because of that, that's, and for me, I think what you mentioned way early on the name there, he has no name. I think that just is so symbolic. I know it's not much, but he never has it. Like, they they never address, they address everybody else. But he's never addressed. So, you know what it could be? He's like the, the what do they call it? The, the one man? The only man? You ever yeah, heard of the man. only? Every man! He is the every man! That's, exactly and that's, that's a, a big theater a, reference that we it. always mm-hmm.
1: it so It's a simple. kind of morality play.
0: Do you have any oh before before we close it off? How about the one-liners? Did you not notice that there's so many one-liners in this film?
1: What did he say? I'm here to chew bubble gum and kick ass and I'm out of bubble gum. <laughs> yeah.
0: I think they're so funny. I love that punny one-lining like comedic just stupidity because that was his purpose. He, he did it on purpose.
1: And I think it's to keep you hooked. Like there was a comedian named Bill Hicks in the 80s and 90s who used to always say, don't worry, I'm getting to the dick jokes. Don't <laughs> worry, I'm getting to the dick jokes. It was that cheap stuff that a lot of people come for. They come for it, the quote unquote dick jokes. Yeah. Some people come for slapstick. Some people come for those fight scenes that we were talking the about. He <laughs> Carpenter's great. He gives you the fight scenes. He gives you the slapstick, but underneath it all is this so really he you you want, but he also serious Critique.
0: But is there anything else you wanted to tie into it in your last I just want to say no. thank you. This was a fun yeah.
1: conversation. a great conversation. Yeah. I've always wanted to talk about this movie. I've always thought it was genius. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. There was an artist named Shepard Fairey who um, was actually responsible for Obama's sort of campaign public relations, or at least a small part of it, mm-hmm. back in 2008, who I heard talk about it. And he was one of the only people I've ever heard wow. talk publicly about this movie. So it was a real... Really? It was a thrill okay. to be able to talk with you about it. Because yeah. I feel
0: like a lot of people know that they just... They don't at the same time. It's one of those things. I I hope one day this film eventually gets a comeback. I think it will. I think... I'd it, love
1: to see it remade.
0: Oh, I don't know if I agree with it. it has to be done well.
1: Yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying it could be done better, oh but God. I think we need the glasses if, more than ever.
0: If, if, or a spinoff. Mm-hmm. But a remake would be better because then they'll take the same elements, but it has to be. It John Carpenter has to be behind it. He has I to hope,
1: be I I, I, hope, I hope he's got one more in it.
0: I do too. But the thing is, us talking about it and people hearing about it, it's going to be publicized more. The more it's publicized, maybe I'll get back to him.
1: John, we want more.
0: John, we want more. One more. And then you can retire. This is it. Bring it back. But thank you so much for coming. And I mean, we'll definitely have you again for sure. Thank you. Bye, you guys. Until next time. Ciao now.